This is Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker on CFUR 88.7 FM in Prince George and around the world on the Series of Tubes. Good morning. It is Wednesday, the 3rd of November, 2021, and this is another edition of the off-air version of Cocktail Hour. And the good news is not only do we have a great guest in the form of Amy Hamm, uh, we also have some serious uh, cocktail appreciation with um, a gin and soda with lime cocktail using the new Hendrix Luna Gin. So I won't belabor this introduction. Just a reminder to those who are still listening uh, among my detractors, uh, we will be continuing to cover uh, the identitarian uh, movement and the gender orthodoxy exclusively while complaints by members of that orthodoxy keep me off the public airwaves. So anytime you'd like to stop, we can move on to another issue. However, uh, I don't think that's likely to happen. So we should continue to have, I think, a number of dynamic, interesting interview subjects during our program's deep dive into the gender orthodoxy. Next up is Amy Ham. Well, it's now the third episode of podcast-only circulation of Cocktail Hour. And uh, as per my promise, I am using this time to platform folks uh, who... um, share some of my concerns about uh, the current gender orthodoxy in our society. And I'm privileged to have uh, Amy Hamm, uh, nurse, longtime feminist activist in Vancouver, um, who um, has been going through an ordeal, let's say, maybe more than one ordeal, but at least one ordeal, Uh, because she chose to publicly express some concerns with the orthodoxy. And um, there were some, if not surprising, at least disappointing consequences to that. And she's been tied up in a dispute with her union, her employer, et cetera, ever since. So first of all, thank you for coming on the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's been, this conversation has been a long time coming. It, it clearly has. And, uh, you know, folks, if you express skepticism of the orthodoxy, this is the only good place it goes. Nobody can make a private arrangement with the orthodoxy to get to say some things that dissent. Um, it's kind of an all or nothing proposition these days. So before we get into the nitty gritty of um, your efforts to keep your job, continue supporting your kids, et cetera, um, let's take a moment to appreciate this gin. So we haven't had a proper evening interview. We haven't had the show at cocktail hour in a while. And there is a new kind of Hendrix gin that has just come out and we're sampling it now in, I believe it's the, it's a gin and soda with lime. Yeah, gin and soda with lime. It's the Hendrix Luna um, special edition, maybe small batch made in Scotland, flavored with citrus and other natural flavors, whatever that means. It's really good. Yeah, I'm surprised. It's got a hint of something that I I found um, you don't often get in gin, which is um, that cucumber note, which I really like. Yeah. uh... Me too. I've had cucumber flavored gin and that's really good as well so I like this one yeah I think it um and it it doesn't show up and beat you up or anything it's um it's a better sipping gin than the standard Hendrix yeah yours is mixed with soda and lime too yep yeah perfect and uh yeah I didn't need to add cucumber because it's already bringing that note yeah it does have that well, to quote the great David Letterman, I don't think there's a man, woman, or child alive who doesn't enjoy a nice beverage. So, uh, 
let's enjoy our beverages. Uh, yeah. Okay, so so I don't even know where to start the story exactly. So we'll start yeah. in the middle. You are fighting to keep your job as a nurse. Oh, Whom are you fighting in order to do that? Um, I, I, I guess just as a disclaimer, there's stuff going on that I'm not allowed to talk about because I'm in the midst of it. I'll say kind of as much as I can, uh, but essentially because of the activism and the work that I do in Vancouver, um, people started online saying, Amy's a nurse. This is where she works. Everyone go and complain to the nursing college, which some people find that confusing. It, it doesn't mean a school. The nursing college is a regulatory body that gives nurses their license to practice in the province. So people complained to my regulatory body. And then I was under investigation for months and months and months uh, and essentially accused of being transphobic for, <laughs> for journalism work that I've done, for my social media accounts, and for the role that I played in um, an iHeartJK rolling billboard that went up in Vancouver. Uh, so I've been under investigation, and then basically... I was allowed to respond to my college and, uh, you know, I said, I'm not transphobic. I retain lawyers at the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. They're excellent. And uh, and then kind of the latest was that I received, here's a proposed punishment for your wrongdoing. <laughs> and I was left in the position of accepting the punishment or saying no and then it would trigger a disciplinary hearing so th this happened a few months ago and I can't really say where it's at right now I can say like there's stuff going on and it will become apparent soon but that's kind of where publicly it's left off so to be clear then um this is uh, this is a body like the BC College of Teachers or the um, College of Physicians and Surgeons, and so mm -hmm. this doesn't just affect your ability to work for your employer. This affects your ability to work at your job for mm -hmm. anyone. For anyone. So the, so the idea is that if a person expresses political views mm -hmm. that are outside of the current gender orthodoxy. It's yeah. the position of the complainants that they should not be permitted to do nursing work anywhere mm -hmm. ever. Yes, they're saying that I would be a danger to trans or gender diverse patients. Um, despite the, so uh, everything that people are complaining about 100% is related to what I do outside of work. They're never has been a patient complaint about me. There's never been an issue with my work. I've had zero issues in my decade of doing this. It's 100% um, activists, trans activists complaining about what I do in my spare time. Right, and that's why this show is currently not broadcasting on the airwaves right now. Um, no one was able to find uh, because I didn't cover the gender orthodoxy on this show. But the yeah. complainants eventually complained to the radio station that me engaging in political speech outside the show that was outside the orthodoxy voided my ability to run the show. And I, yeah. I want to begin here because this is actually very different from any, the behavior of any freedom struggle I can think of. Right. Mm -hmm. I can't remember, you know, when I was fighting for gay marriage, I don't remember anyone saying that people who opposed gay marriage shouldn't be allowed to have jobs. Yeah. Uh, when my grandfather was fighting for integration, he mm -hmm. never took the position that Klansmen shouldn't be allowed to support their families, that they yeah. shouldn't be allowed to push a broom or stitch up a wound or whatever it was that they were trained in doing. Well, it's so, gotten so crazy in Canada that now you've seen recently there, there was a 
CBC piece where a, a woman who worked at polling stations, she's writing about how she feels that anyone who is a conservative voter hates her as a, as a Muslim woman is like a racist, hates her. And that that's how extreme it is. That's how polarized and extreme it is, is that you can't even now have conservative viewpoints without the left accusing you of being hateful, engaging in hate speech, being a racist. It's just gone completely off the rails. Now, uh, 10 years ago, I, I think uh, both of us would have considered ourselves members of the left, that our subscription to ideas like radical feminism was in fact an indication that we were part of the left. And I found it quite curious this term TERF that has arisen, trans-exclusionary radical feminist, because I was unaware, really. Um, I mean, I was an ally of radical feminists, but no one had called me a radical feminist until that became the euphemism for trans folk. And yeah. I've seen that Mike Pence is a radical feminist. Ted Cruz is a radical feminist. Maxime Bernier is a radical feminist. Um, there's an amazing list of like greasy dudes like me who are about 50 years old who have, who until recently were accused of perhaps being, you know, a little sexist in our old school organizing habits. And suddenly we're all members of radical feminism. Um, yeah. This, uh, this suggests something quite strange about the discourse. Why do you think it's so important that people on the political left work to delegitimate radical feminism and associate it with the Christian right? I mean, it, they, I think that they know that if they are using actual arguments, they don't have them. So they then resort to calling people bigots, racists. It's the same... I watched this brilliant um, interview that Helen Joyce just did. Um, she's a, a journalist at The Economist and she took a sabbatical to write this book about trans issues. It's called Trans. And she was just interviewed and um, her interviewer, I can't remember the journalist's name, but he kind of said like, how are we supposed to engage with um, these people? And she was like, you don't, they're fanatics. Don't engage with them. All we have to do is win. <laughs> because they're not using facts, they're not using logic, they are extremists. And we just have to keep fighting and put truth and reason out there and, and win, basically. Now, I want to, before we leave this point, um, and I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that there are matters um, that are being negotiated by lawyers, matters before regulatory bodies, obviously only answer is you can, but yeah. I talked a bit about um, speaking with Chris Elston and I asked him uh, for an inventory of the number of times that he's been assaulted or otherwise attacked. And I'm guessing that uh, the attempt to have your license revoked as a nurse is not the only significant attack you've experienced. And one of the things I want our listeners mm. to understand is the degree to which um, the speech suppression we're facing is backed up by force. So yeah. um, doxing, rape threats, murder threats, things like that. What's been your experience of that? Yeah, and I, I would also preface that by saying that at, like, as a woman, I'm extremely careful. Anytime I've been doing events or anything public organizing, we spend a lot of money on security because we're we're women and we can't really afford to get assaulted by these men like it could be a lot more dangerous for us than um than a man who's putting himself out there obviously but yeah definitely i've i have had death threats rape threats um it, you know at one point i had a vancouver police department officer on my speed dial and she's just like yeah just you know, give me a shout anytime you get like a threatening email or a threatening message on social media and I'll add it to your file, that kind of thing. Um, I've been investigated by 
the police for false um, accusations that were made against me because of another very notorious activist who uh, doesn't like the work that I do and um, falsely accused me of sexual assault. Um, like someone who is enormous and male and, you know, dwarfs me by probably 150 pounds. And uh, yeah, the, like I was threatened to by police that, with arrest. There, it, it's been crazy. All, I can't even believe that any of this has happened, <laughs> that this is my life. I'm like, how is it that you, you just want to stand up for reality and, you know, say men can't literally be women and I would like to preserve women's sex-based rights. And then you have to deal with so much abuse and gaslighting and threat. Well, actually, but I mean, let's suppose that you said something unreasonable. I don't see folks from QAnon receiving hundreds of public rape threats or hundreds of public murder threats. Margaret Atwood received over 1600 public rape and murder threats on social media in a single day for writing a two word tweet about an article in her local paper. And yeah. so there's this sense of, well, actually, what if we were completely wrong? What if we were totally insane? Yeah. Um, would it, it still, still be, it. would it then be okay for us to not have jobs or no. these other things or, or the ability to speak? No, I, I can, I agree. It's absolutely not okay. And my, I'm a free speech absolutist. I have encountered a lot of people I disagree with. And I, I, if, if I see someone that's kind of quote unquote on my side, attempting to do anything related to like contacting someone's employer, I'm like, you know, back off. That's not okay. Like you, I, I don't, condone or endorse any of that behavior um it's and i think the fact that this is happening so much to the women mostly the women who are speaking out about this issue and they're getting so many threats um i i do think that it reveals that there is a huge undercurrent of misogyny in what's happening well in in many ways right um you know i i think of my situation right i nobody's going to threaten to rape me. Um, <laughs> very few people are going to threaten to murder me. Um, yeah. And, you know, obviously in our society, women have long contended with private rape and murder threats. I think that's been a continuous feature um, since forever. But the public rape and murder threats are a whole new development of the past decade. Um, yeah. And it's very strange, right, to watch people who identify as liberal feminists um, arguing that these rape and murder threats against women are a reasonable insertion into yeah. the discourse. Yeah. What do you make of, I mean, there are lots of different possible explanations for this problem of the fact that the... Um, and I, I have no reason to believe Chris Elster is wrong, it seems consistent with my experience, that some of the most fanatical believers in this orthodoxy are young women who understand themselves to be feminists. And I, I wonder, how, how do you think that community is squaring this discourse of public rape and murder with that identity? I... I struggle to understand this too. It's a really depressing thought. And I, I think a lot of it, a lot of the discussion about it comes back to kind of female socialization and the fact that we're told to be nice and we're told to be accepting. Um, and I think sometimes uh, women can be kind of cruel to one another if they feel that other, you know, if you're not part of the in crowd. So I, I, and I'm not, to be clear, I'm not someone partly, like a lot of people call me a radical feminist. I disagree that gender is 100% a social construct. I agree more with kind of like Deborah So, who's the sexologist, Canadian, um, wrote The End of Gender. And she's 
described kind of that there is scientific support for the idea that some of gender is biological. I, I agree with that, but I do think there's an aspect of socialization. And I, just, I find it extremely depressing that so many young women are buying into trans ideology and that a lot of <laughs> the major trans activists are actually, it seems like it's the bulk of them are women. And then a subset of that is autogynephilic males. <laughs> and it depresses me. And I do wonder how much of it is just female socialization. Yeah, it's, I mean, certainly it's, there's got to be a climate of fear. I mean, I think when you're watching other, uh, I think when you're watching other women being burned for witchcraft, uh, there does tend yeah. to be a certain social effect there. Now, one of the things that has happened in this debate, I think, is that whenever I, you know, I still have woke friends um, who are on the other side of all this. And congratulations. I, <laughs> Uh, well, it's, it's, it's work. It's work, yeah. but I just one day decided to cancel no one else. I just went, you know what, this is all going in the wrong direction. I'm going to hang on to people and see if they come around. And my friend yeah. Thompson was a died in the wool Trump supporter in 2016. By 2019, um, you know, the scales had fallen from his eyes. Um, and I knew they would because he was a stand up guy and there was only so long he could get pulled into a bad scene for. So there's, but one of the things that I found, like it seems to me there's a set of tactics that are almost subconsciously metabolized by the people who are trying to make sure that we never work again. And one of those is the centering of transgender individuals in the orthodoxy. The idea that every time we have a debate, we think we are talking about the people who have undergone cosmetic surgery and cross-sex hormones and all of those things. Mm -hmm. But one of the, but your recent work on the Canadian prison system um, yeah. strikes me as salutary because it reminds us that the gender orthodoxy um, can produce situations that involve no one who has yep. undergone those experiences. Mm -hmm. That we now have a self-identification rule, which means yeah. that any man in prison can yeah. at any time for any reason say, I am a woman and yeah. be taken out of men's prison and put in women's prison. Yeah. And it strikes me that on like a basic incentive-based level, why wouldn't all kinds of people do that? Like certainly men who are mm -hmm. sexual predators who like raping women, who are in fact doing time for raping women, their incentive for saying I am a woman and going to women's prison is overwhelming. But oh, there's also cute. an incentive for sex offenders who may yeah. be in danger of being sexually assaulted by other men. They yeah. too have an excellent reason for taking five seconds out of their day to yeah. say, I am a woman. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could take us into this campaign to protect incarcerated women uh, that you've been working yeah. on. There, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to get into there. And I think uh, when you first started, I, I I wanted to say there's, it brings to my mind how important it is to go and have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people and change their minds about this issue because the general public doesn't understand. As you said, when they hear trans women, they're thinking someone who has had the surgery to have their penis and testicles removed, someone who's been on hormones and makes every effort to look like a woman and experiences gender dysphoria. Um, and that is not the case. There's, <laughs> there that is a single subset of the trans population and if you are following trans activism there's this whole concept of the trans umbrella and it includes everyone like a bearded man who makes no effort to transition doesn't take hormones 
Self-ID means that literally anyone says, I identify as a woman and they're treated as such in the law. And that's what we do now in Canada. And it has opened the door for predators to go into women's prisons. And that has happened. Um, and I and I also just want to say, so the, the kind of foremost advocate for women in Canada is Heather Mason. She's formerly incarcerated. And she is, I don't, yeah, she's amazing. And maybe you can link below to her Twitter so that people can follow her. But she's the one who basically raised the alarm bell in Canada about this issue. And after coming out of prison, brought this to the public's attention to her own detriment. Because I, you know, she's, <laughs> if you're a woman who has uh, been in prison, and you need to go out and make a living for yourself. Imagine you all, you have a criminal record. You've been in prison for years and you're a turf. Right. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I'm university educated. I, I have all of these privileges and it's like, she has all these disadvantages. And then she also decided to be brave enough to come out as a turf. So tons of respect for her. She's, amazing um and everyone should be following her work so the the work that i do on prisons is because i know her and i work with her at Cosbar canadian women's sex-based rights um and, and yeah we've um, just been trying to draw attention to the fact that there are males who are abusing self-id laws to identify their ways identify their way into women's prisons um and the most recent case was this uh a male who raped and murdered a mother in her home while her three daughters slept down the hallway. And, and then while he was awaiting trial in prison and began identifying as a woman was moved to a female prison. And during the trial, the jury was not informed that this person was now identifying as a woman. They still use the male name, male pronouns. They sentenced this person to life in prison. And now this person is looking at spending a life sentence. So someone who did a home invasion, raped and brutally murdered a woman is looking at a life sentence in a Canadian women's prison. So this is what self ID means. And a lot of Canadians don't understand that you tell them, you know, I don't want trans women in women's prisons. And they think, well, you're just a big meanie because you don't want like people who you don't want that character from Orange is the New Black. You don't want uh, you don't want Maxine from Wentworth to be happy, right? Yeah. That's, um, yeah. So there's this idea that, um, you know, and of course, many of us have this image. Many of us, some of us uh, were like longtime members of the trans rights activist community, you know, for 20 years. And we... And, and so we had this idea. We, we got to know the kind of people who were the center of that community, people like Jamie Lee Hamilton, who were largely, you know, people raised as boys who were genetically male, who um, were same-sex attracted and um, often ended up in sex work. We have that image from a decade ago when in fact... Um, yeah. Uh, the, that whole profile has changed mm -hmm. dramatically. It has. In particular, I, uh, one of the original doctors who uh, was part of these transition processes um, came out last year and was baffled by the fact that um, most, uh, most trans women were very proud of their uh, penises and felt that the, then a sort of had a phallocentric worldview, as it were, right. um, that um, that this was uh, that this was a, a very different way of understanding trans womanhood, even than in 2011. Um, now, with all these big shifts in who most who most uh, people are who identify as the other gender um, as kids, that's shifted. It's gone from being yeah. overwhelmingly boys to overwhelmingly girls. Yeah. Um, 
we've gone from most trans women, uh, most self-identified trans women being people um, who have had their genitals and sex secondary sexual characteristics altered to most yeah. trans women being, uh, you know, um, hairy gentlemen with uh, who are eager to feature um, their male genitalia as the center of their sexuality. Mm-hmm. Why? I mean, how is it that in 10 years we've managed to do these amazing reversals and yet the image of this debate stays the same? How is it that there have been radical demographic changes and no discursive shift in people's imagination of this stuff? It's very, it's it's hard to understand. And I think that a lot of the, in my experience, especially living in Vancouver, being involved in this, doing organizing events, writing about it, talking about it, uh, you see that a lot of the hardcore trans activists are the males that have autogynephilia, which is the sexual fetish where one gets turned on by the by people perceiving them as a literal woman. And so this, I think this group of people, it has very successfully managed to capitalize upon the fact that there are all of these youth and children identifying as trans um, because of there's like a social contagion element and there's an element of, as we know, like rapid onset gender dysphoria is affecting um, young autistic women that are not happy about going through puberty and being women in our culture. Uh, and they, so it's like this subset of the trans population has managed to capitalize on this very vulnerable, like child transition thing and try to use that to, <laughs> to their own advantage um, and, and to legitimize the whole trans activism movement and to legitimize self-ID laws. Now, self-ID laws, I, I thought were, were sort of, well, I mean, in a way, he felt he was making a case for them. Um, some of us felt he was making a case against them. Eddie Izzard, right, announced that his gender um, changes based on when he is in girl mode and when he is not in girl mode. So yeah. I, I think one of the other things to emphasize here is this is a thing that can be turned on and off. Now, you know what, many, many of us, uh, you know, men, um, you know, rather took to those, you know, lesbian pictorials they introduced in Penthouse in the mid 80s. You know, I sort of grew up on that and I thought, oh, well, that would be very nice. Um, how does, how does like liking page 64 and 65 of Penthouse in the 80s yeah. go all the way to this idea that one should reorganize one's entire life around mm-hmm. being turned on by that pictorial. Like some of us yeah. just sort of enjoyed the pictorial and moved on. Yeah. Um, and I, I want, what is, I'm also a little incredulous about what's going on with men. Uh, because I don't fully understand our solidarity with men who've decided to base their lives on that. I, yeah. I guess I'm old fashioned because, you know, I always thought that there were very things, very few things that we owed the rest of the population uh, in the patriarchy that we ran. And yeah. I thought that like the only thing that patriarchy really was delivering for women was the fact that like old rich men would protect us from young violent kinky men that that was like that was that was like the thing that got social buy-in for this system and yeah. so i don't fully understand even why it is that so many guys like me are identifying with individuals hmm. who've decided to reshape their entire life narrative around this autogynephilia fetish Sexual fetish yeah i mean and like to be clear, I, I have the utmost sympathy for trans people who 
experienced gender dysphoria and they just want to live their life and they feel the most comfortable presenting as the opposite sex. Historically, a lot of these people have been homosexual males that are more effeminate and that is how they would like to present. Um, And a lot of the uh, kind of gender critical trans people in this movement are, they're either like trans men or they are these homosexual males who identify as females and, and they're very sympathetic because they don't need the validation of being literally seen as a woman to get off on their fetish. And so this, and again, it's like this subset of the trans activism movement that is largely controlling the narrative is these males with a sexual fetish. And I don't have sympathy (laughs) for this subset of the trans population. I, I really don't care about a man's sexual fetish. Um, And I find it quite disturbing that their sexual fetish is now being used to kind of upend society and and restrict women's sex-based rights. Well, it is kind of weird. Like, you know, I mean, masculinity is a hugely problematic thing. I really reject the term toxic masculinity because I'm unaware of the non-toxic kind. Uh, And so, uh, you know, I, 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 I await being educated on that front. Uh, But um, I think this is really important. You've pointed to another thing, which is um, your trans allies, people like the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, um, you know, uh, where we see trans men putting forward their demands, or uh, let's say other natal women putting forward their demands. can you say a little more about like what it's been like to interact with um, other natal women who are trans in these political coalitions and what their big concerns have tended to be? I, yeah, I think I, I always remember this after doing this one event in Vancouver talking about the trans issues there was this trans man who approached me after the event and had kind of like run across the street and was like, hi, I just really wanted to find you and say that, you know, I really support what you're doing. And like, I'm a trans man. And, and I honestly wouldn't have even known had she not told me that she was a trans man, because it, as a lot of people have noted um trans men pass better as males than males it's very rare for a male to pass as female but it can be quite common for a female to pass as male so anyways i you know so this trans man was just like i appreciate what you're doing i totally understand it i'm not offended and um yeah i don't know if you go back to the turf thing like the trans exclusionary radical feminist Something that a lot of us will bring up is we're not trans exclusionary because (laughs) if you're talking about a rape shelter and they like to say, oh, you're so horrible because you would turn like a person with a penis away from a women's rape shelter, you're trans exclusionary. It's like, no, if a trans man showed up to a women's rape shelter, they would be welcome. (laughs) So it's not this is the structure of the sports debate, right? Sports yeah. are not trans inclusive unless they shut out trans men from sports, right? Yeah. So if you organize sports based on self-ID, then yeah. men dominate men's sports and natal men dominate women's sports. Yeah. But if you organize sports based on natal sex, then trans men can do very well in yeah. women's sports. They can, uh, trans women yeah. can do well in men's sports. For, me- for many years, the leader of the trans rights movement in Thailand was a trans woman who beat a male kickboxing champion and became the national kickboxing champion. Um, and that was viewed as a point of pride by trans yeah. women in Thailand, that wow. one of their own had beaten a man um in a men's sport and so i'm 
I'm interested in this, this sort of the invisibility of trans men in the discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, how, in looking at our adversaries and people who are interested in shutting down all this speech. Um, it makes you think about... Sorry, could you say that again, please? Yeah, it, it just makes you think about misogyny again. Why in this entire movement are the quote-unquote women who are featured within this movement the women who are actually biological males? Yes, it does give one pause when one looks at the differential in treatment when you accede to the demands of the movement. So, for instance, going back to prison, when the John Howard Society housed people based on natal sex and housed trans women and men getting out of prison. Um, That was an easy thing to do. When it switched to self-ID, our local um, John Howard Society uh, shelter here in Prince George was faced with a terrible choice. A trans man was getting out of prison and the executive director was left with this choice of if there's a spare bed here, they're going to be housed here, which means that they are certain to be sexually assaulted. And uh, they are certain. Uh, and my men, some of my men are going to get sec- sent back to prison for sexually assaulting them. And so yeah. the executive director's only choice was to get an axe and smash the spare bed in the shelter so that he yeah. could claim there was no room in order to protect the trans man. (laughs) I mean, this is a case in point, right? When it it comes down to the breast tax, people know what a male is. They know what a woman is. They know what the risks are. Everybody knows. And we're, we're just pretending on a large scale, the people who buy into this woke bullshit. It's like... That, that's a perfect example of the fact that everyone knows what reality is. It's, um, yeah, it's a curious, it's a curious environment in which we find ourselves. And so I, um, I want to talk a little bit about how our movement is changing um, because uh, this is a very curious movement of people who reject the gender orthodoxy. There are sort of classical liberal free speech advocates. There are radical feminists. There are socialist materialists. And there's the Christian right. And um, you've been having to negotiate um, a bunch of that, right, with um, the fact that the People's Party did decide to throw in with the Christian right and against the porno right, which was backing mm-hmm. the Maverick Party. And mm-hmm. we, we've had to metabolize, you know, um, conservative men like Chris Elston joining the movement, not because they're feminists, but because they recognize that patriarchy is failing to deliver a patriarchy. This is a retrograde patriarchy <laughs> and is not living up to the basic standards of like, you know, uh, you know, uh, early modern Spain or something. So as this tent gets bigger, I'm interested in hearing what your experiences have been like as you've been discovering and interacting with these various new sorts of allies? Um, I won't say that it has been easy, um, but, (laughs) you know, I'm, there was this coalition of women across Canada. I was approached to be one of the founders of COSBAR, as I've mentioned before, Canadian women's sex-based rights. We are nonpartisan. We're kind of like a single issue organization. We, a lot of people will call us feminists, but we don't explicitly say that we're feminist. I think some people within Cosbar consider themselves feminists. Some don't. We just are an organization that wants to uphold women's sex-based rights in Canada. 
Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's, I've had a lot of flack, whether it's from being in Cosbar or, you know, like earlier this year, speaking at an event with Maxine Bernier. And I got a ton of um, kind of feminist people messaging me saying, what the hell are you doing? Why would you speak with this person? Why would you be associated with this person? And I'm not a stranger to this. Like I've organized events before where it's like, why did you invite the speaker? Why did you not invite the speaker? And all of this has in like to be completely honest it all of it has served to just kind of turn me off of feminism because it almost seems like it's as culty as trans activism and I'm like I before I got involved in all of this I didn't think I was a feminist and then I went through a period of being like I'm totally into radical feminism to noticing that radical feminism was a little bit of engaged in science denialism with the whole gender versus intrinsic, you know, like biological characteristics that determine our behavior. I feel like I'm rambling now, but. Like, well, that's actually an I, important part of cocktail hour. Is yeah, that, no, I, uh, it's good to catch up with our own thoughts and our own experiences. Yeah. Cause most of the time you're fighting, you're on the run. You don't have time to consider all this stuff. For sure. But yeah, no, I, um, I, have gotten a lot of flack for not being a perfect feminist and for being nonpartisan. And I maintain that I feel it's very important to be that way. And I will continue to do that. And I think that you can't be partisan in this fight because first of all, you won't get any platforms. And secondly, you, uh, you exclude an a huge audience that will never listen to you if you just categorize yourself as some like partisan second wave feminist. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I think I have a different, um, I mean, for me, I was always, I understood that gender was a social construction, um, but it, social constructions have to be constructed out of something, right? They're about how societies stack the information from the physical world and how they interpret it. I found that the term social construction has been so debased in this debate um, because ultimately a social construct. So you don't have anything to construct if you don't have a world to construct things from. You can only use information from the world to build your vision of the world. And I I would agree. Obviously, there has to be some kind of basis that you're constructing it off of. You have to be, yeah, at the end of the day, you're either a materialist or not a materialist. You either think you're in the matrix or you believe there's a world. And (laughs) as um, uh, the physicist Wayne Cannon said, you know, and Wayne Cannon uh, set up the the major like um, deep space telescopes during the Cold War. He could cross between the USSR and uh, the USA effortlessly because everybody needed his his knowledge of that. And he said, you know, he was a dyed in the wool materialist. And he said, at the end of the day, what nobody ever asked me is as a physicist, where does that come from? And the answer is faith. There is no way to know whether this is a simulation, whether this is the matrix or whether this is the real deal. And there's an element of faith in going, I think this is real. I don't think this is a test. But what I notice is the promiscuity with which people use the term social construction, because of course, when we're debating uh, the gender orthodoxy, they think social construction means personal fantasy. Hmm. They don't just drop the material out of it. They also drop the social out of it. They, it's like there's a lack of an understanding that social is even a category that it means like an intersubjective space where we all agree together about what's happening. That even if we won't concede there's a world, we have to concede there are at least other people. Yeah. And so it's also quite odd how this bears on philosophy. So you've, you've had this experience of being labeled and then sort of unlabeling yourself as a person who is just working on this issue. Um, Mm -hmm. what's been your experience with the different 
if we think of this as like a four pillar coalition, you haven't had great experiences necessarily with the other members of the radical feminist pillar of that. What's been your experience with the Christian right and with uh, classical liberals in, uh, in your efforts on this front? I think, I think with Christian, like kind of with the Christian right, there's a very hard line about issues that we know we would disagree on and we don't even go there. And it's just like, let's work together on this issue. We don't need to talk about this other stuff. And that's it. There's, there's an absolute separation. But then if you do that, trans activists will accuse you of colluding with them on everything else. And it's like, no, that's not true. We just are working together on a single issue. Yeah, I, I had exactly the same experience in the 90s with the anti-abortion movement. They sure know when to mm. shut up about their hobby horse if they're cooperating with you. Yeah. In a way, it's actually quite easy to be in a coalition where you only have to agree about one thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the problems that we've faced is that we have this expectation operating in like these siloed parts of the left that we're, we're handed the same expectation the wokes are that we're supposed to expect that people agree with us on everything. Yeah. And this switch to working with people who agree with us about one thing mm -hmm. is, um, I feel like in a way it's salutary for social movement activists because we're like recovering from the 20th century and remembering <laughs> what a coalition was in that century. Yeah. <laughs> That it's, it's it was that no exist anymore. It's just like you're with us or you're against us, and people can't compute the fact that you could <laughs> ally with someone on a single issue. And even like to be honest, I lost an entire social circle of friends in Vancouver because of my political views, and it was like it got to a point where everything was so polarized that they were like you're such a horrible person that I am going to either personally or publicly denounce you. And they've done that. And I don't, like you said, you still have woke friends. I don't because they will not have anything to do with me. I still would <laughs> be happy to have them in my life, but they won't return the favor. Well, I think this also speaks to one of the ways that we're becoming geographically polarized as a society people tend to be more accommodating when they don't hold all the power, um, right? The Christian right is impossible to deal with if you live in Oklahoma. Mm. It's their way mm -hmm. or the highway. Yeah. Uh, but if you live in Vancouver, um, you can get a <laughs> lot of good work done. And yeah. uh, so why do folks still talk to me? Because I live in Prince George. And I don't just yeah. live in Prince George. I, I have deposited myself in the most um, fossil fuel industry adjacent neighborhood I could find, even though, of course, uh, my main issue is the climate and I don't agree with my neighbors about yeah. that at all. Yeah. But the thing yeah. is that, yeah, people can get into shunning when they hold a certain level of social power. Yeah. And Good without thing. that yeah. power other things become possible. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, but yeah, the Christian right has been, I mean, they're wrong, but they've been screwed so hard and so unfairly in so many ways, honestly, that uh, they're pretty easy to make deals with. Uh, I mean, I, I never would have imagined because I, I consider one of my very good friends is <laughs> a right-wing Christian pastor in my city. I have so much respect for him. Amazing person. I, and I'm like, I never ever would have thought that <laughs> this is where I would be when it, you know, I'm pushing 40. <laughs> like This is very bizarre as a lifelong atheist um, that I've been denounced by all of my lefty friends and I've made friends with conservative Christians. Well, this is why we don't have proportional representation in British Columbia. As long as the coalition included everybody who wanted it, you know, 
Well, he had over 50% of the vote. Yeah. But um, I remember trying to sell to people the idea that we needed Christian right votes in the last referendum. And it was anathema. In fact, memos were circulated about how we could, how we were failing to drive our polling numbers down fast enough among BC Liberal and BC Tory supporters that in fact, the idea that our side might be tainted with like bad people having voted for the thing we'd been working for for decades. Yeah, that we we'd gotten the thing, but the thing had become contaminated because imperfect yeah. people had supported it. Um, You're adjacent, adjacent to them. That's like the new thing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm. So part of this is, in a way, a comment on, um, you know, and my American friends have very little sympathy for this conversation, right? Friends of mine who live in Texas. Um, mm. they're surrounded by very accommodating wokes and totally fascistic uh, Christian right people. Why would right. they think that that would reverse if yeah. the power balance reversed? Right. And yeah. um, so one of the other things that I find is we people, those of us who've been thrown into this experience, I don't think anybody walked here voluntarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, those of us who've been thrown into this experience are having a set of experiences that it's increasingly hard to translate to people who are not having them. And mm-hmm. I mean, int- there's the story of the friends you've lost, but I'm also interested in the story of the friends you brought along, the friends you've kept. Yeah. What have been the things that have worked in keeping your community together from before all of this stuff at Hayhead? Um, I, I mean, I would, if I'm being perfectly candid, I did lose a lot of friends. Um, but I have gained a lot more and the friends that I have gained are so much more diverse than the crew that I had before, both like in terms of their beliefs and how they look and like their ethnicity, whatever they're in every way more diverse. And which is also an irony because I don't think that these woke people realize how absolutely upper middle class and white they are. (laughs) Well, no, because they love professional tokens. And if you pull a professional token into your organization, it's assigned to every red blooded member of that community not to join. There's no more effective way to keep your organization lily white than to bring in a professional token like Desmond Cole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I don't care anymore. I would still be happy to, I always love having conversations, debates, arguments with people. I would be happy to still speak to these people. None of them want to really speak to me. Um, And yeah, I think, the, I, I don't know. In some ways, the writing has been on the wall for a long time, even before this crazy last. It seems like in 2016 was maybe a turning point when things got really bad. <laughs> things started fracturing so much. And kind of before that, I would still get in hot water for, you know, being into like Christopher Hitchens. And people would be like, well, the things you're saying about women in the Middle East, it's very Islamophobic. <laughs> so and then it kind of turned from like if you disagree with a feminist you call her islamophobic to you call her a turf right so yes there's a creeping orthodoxy in a sense now i'm mm-hmm. going to wrap this up so that we, we we get our listeners something that's a little under an hour and a half but i wanted oh, sure. to uh, i wanted to tell you that um what you said about your old friends versus your new friends yeah is almost verbatim a speech that terry glavin gave my class five years ago oh wow um about (laughs) what happens (laughs) if you oh he is he is a lot of fun i seriously disagree with him about five things but he has reshaped my thinking glavin is you know and glavin is more part of the left than these wokes i think will ever be 
you know, he he and I are really far apart on Modi. We're really far apart on Israel. But um, at the end of the day, he told the same story. It's like, well, what happens if you align with feminists in the global south? What happens if you align with free speech activists and socialists in the global south? Well, you lose all your friends and then you get these new friends. But my goodness, aren't these new friends a lot less white? (laughs) Yeah, it's so true. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So super ironic. (laughs) It's super ironic. Anyway, it's been a pleasure talking to you and sharing the experience of being outside the walls together. Um, given the superb quality of cocktail I've enjoyed, um, I'm hoping we can, uh, we can get you back in a couple months to, um, find out the next turn in this story of whether you're going to have to, like me, go back to school and get a whole new accreditation in order to keep working in BC. I would love to do that. Yeah, I'll come back. Um, yeah, more is forthcoming. So I'll, I'll definitely come back on here. Wonderful. Thanks, Amy. Okay, thank you Goodbye. so much. That was Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker on CFUR 88.7 FM here in Prince George. <laughs>